Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, and welcome back to Talking Companies. I'm Phil Muscatello. And I'm Mark Tobin. Hi, I'm Adam Bremer. And of course, today we're speaking with Adam Bremer, who is the founder and CEO of Open Learning Limited. In 2012, Adam joined David Collian and world-renowned professor Richard Buckland to found OpenLearning.com, a lifelong learning platform with over 5 million enrolments that prepares learners for the future of work. So, Adam... Please introduce us to yourself and give us a 360 overview of Open Learning. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for your time. So I'm Adam. I'm the founder and CEO of Open Learning. And Open Learning's purpose is to increase access to higher quality education. And we do that by providing a lifelong learning platform that enables any education provider to build and launch their online education programs and businesses. So that's everything from short courses that could be a couple hours or you know a few weeks long, all the way through to micro-credentials and even online degree programs. And our clients include everyone from universities all the way down to individual educators who have something to teach. So Open Learning, we started about nine years ago. And in that time, we've grown considerably to reach over 5 million enrollments, over 3 million unique users on the platform and close to 200 education providers building and delivering courses. And Open Learning's really approach is that we try and make it as easy as possible to build and deliver online courses, and we provide all the tools to education providers to build an online education business. So that's everything from handling enrollments and payments for the courses, delivering the course itself, designing a great learning experience, and really with a focus on project and activity-based learning. So there's a strong community of practice and then all the way through to micro-credentials, assessments, and producing portfolios to enable people to become more employable. So that's what we do at Open Learning. So thinking back to when you first started it, what was your dream in creating this company? Our vision has always been to increase access to higher quality education. And one of the reasons for that is my co-founders and I you know, have always been really passionate about enabling anyone anywhere to get a really high quality education. And at the moment, you know, the quality of the education actually depends a great deal on where someone is located, the lecture they have, the institution they go to, how well the learning experience was designed. And while all of those are factors, the actual technology that is used to deliver education plays a huge role in the quality of the learning experience. So that's where the impetus for open learning comes from. The idea that a well-designed learning experience on a platform that is purpose-built for a higher quality, more socially constructive style of learning will lead to better outcomes. And that's what we've focused on for the past nine years. And that's what we're committed to doing today. And we're really excited that over the past nine years, we've actually been delivering on that. Obviously, there's always a long way to go. There's millions more students, many more institutions who could benefit from this. But we're really excited by what we achieved so far. Can you give us some case studies or one or two case studies of open learning in action? Yeah, definitely. There's really so many. <laughs> so I'll, I'll pick a few. A few uh, recent ones that I've found really interesting is actually just in the past year, the Australian Catholic University worked with us 
to deliver a training program for nurses in Victoria as Victoria was battling the second wave of COVID last year. And that was a project in collaboration with the Department of Human Services. And that project actually upskilled 975 nurses in a very short period of time. And it enabled those nurses to transition from the subacute ward to the acute ward in preparation for you know, more patients coming through. And that's the kind of thing that's possible on open learning. You know, when you have significant needs for upskilling and reskilling, you have a very short time frame to do it. You require scale, but you also require quality. It's not just about delivering, you know, videos and quizzes to people because that's not going to provide them with enough of a learning experience to actually develop those skills. With open learning, it's actually about the projects, the activities, the feedback, the collaboration, and doing that course with a whole range of people. So that's one project that we worked on together with the university and the state government department last year. But there's a whole range, everything from working with the University of New South Wales on their transition program to enable international students to study online and to prepare themselves for university, all the way through to short courses where we're looking at AI and computer science. And across Southeast Asia, where we've actually enabled many universities to move online prior to COVID and even during COVID as well, deliver their programs remotely, deliver their courses remotely. Everything from financial literacy through to digital upskilling, and even all the way to you know traditional programs such as MBAs and uh, you know bachelor's degrees and things like that. Adam, in terms of you know where the the main market for open learning is, it is it dealing with universities and I guess bringing new programs, converting existing programs, or is it? more the individual course creator that you're kind of really targeting out there? So I'd say our largest customer base would be education institutions. So that is primarily universities, higher education providers, and some colleges. So the universities are our largest set of clients. And in Australia, we work with 10 of the 43 universities in the country. Across uh, Southeast Asia, we work with a few dozen more universities as well. And universities are the majority of our revenue. And universities run a large number of courses, obviously. You know, if they're looking at launching a lifelong learning program or a short course program or, you know, online or blended degrees, then that's quite a substantial undertaking. So that would be, I'd say, our largest set of customers and the majority of our revenue comes from universities. That said, we are starting to see a lot of uh, independent educators, you know, training providers targeting the corporate sector. A lot of them are starting to come online for the first time. And uh, we've designed open learning such that we have a self-service model and really a do-it-yourself model to make it very easy and cost-effective for them to use the platform, while also being able to service you know, large universities under enterprise agreements, enterprise contracts, with the right service levels and enough support to enable them to actually get going. And then just on that revenue model for the enterprise guys, is that a base fee and then a per seat, per user style model? Or is it a per course model? How does the, the kind of revenue model work with the big universities? So open learning generates revenue in two ways. The core of our model is software as a service. So universities, education providers sign up to use open learning and they pay an annual fee based on the number of learners that they have in their courses on the platform. Now, this usually starts off at a minimum level. So for 
a university, it's typically a minimum of $50,000 a year for up to 5,000 students on the platform. For a small education provider, so if you sign up through our website, we have plans that go all the way down to you know a few hundred dollars a month for 500 learners per year. So it scales quite a bit, um, and there's obviously different features and functionality depending on the plan. And then from there, it's a tiered usage-based pricing model. So as they increase their usage, uh, if they go to say, you know, 10,000 learners or 15,000 learners, then the price obviously would increase from there based on their usage. Now, I think the key thing about all of this is that open learning is a platform for these education providers to deliver courses to any students, not just students that they attract through open learning. So when you go to openlearning.com, you'll see a number of courses available on the website, but that's actually only about 2% of the courses that are running on open learning. And those are just ones that are showcased for the public. The vast majority of the courses running are actually private courses. They're incorporated into either you know, university degrees, corporate training programs, upskilling initiatives, and they don't actually show up on our website publicly. <laughs> so a lot of the courses that are actually delivered on open learning, you don't see. So there's a lot more than what's on the website. And what that means is that these education providers are actually bringing the students with them to the platform. So when I say, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 learners, it's not that they're trying to attract that many learners through open learning itself. They probably already have that many or more that they want to actually deliver courses to. So that's the way the software as a service model works. And we have additional value-added services on top of that. So for example, if an education provider wants assistance in designing and building their courses, we have a learning design team that's ready to assist them. That's a professional service that we just charge on a daily basis for, but the core of it is software as a service. In addition to that, we have a revenue stream we call program delivery. And in the program delivery space, we actually partner with universities to design and deliver really high quality, high value online programs. And the main program we have in that segment that we launched earlier this year is with the University of New South Wales under UNSW Global, which is their international division. And that's the UNSW Transition Program Online, which is a four-month direct entry program into the university for students who just miss out on getting into the university. So these are very high-performing students, but maybe a few of their marks just weren't high enough to get into UNSW or other universities. So they go through this program. It's four months, full-time, online, designed and delivered by us in collaboration with UNSW Global. And that's something we've done on a partnership model. So those are the two sides. There's program delivery and the software as a service. Does open learning provide cost savings to universities in rolling out these kind of programs? So open learning can be much more cost effective than other online solutions. So for example, open learning is designed for a significant scale, which means that you can have courses running on open learning with hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, even over 100,000 people. And what that means is that the per user costs can be quite low. And open learning as a platform is a global cloud platform. So it's designed so that's very scalable. That gives us significant cost advantages when providing our platform specifically for things like lifelong learning, where you have much higher volume. If you're looking at like, say, you know, people studying online degrees, we charge the same amount to the platform. So it's even more cost effective compared to the fee that the students would be paying. But obviously the platform is only one element of the cost. So what we've done with the platform is tried to encourage education providers to design courses that have a much stronger sense of community, that are more activity and project-based, 
And what that means is yeah, you can have a very rich and exciting experience for students that delivers the outcomes, but doesn't necessarily require as much face time yeah, with a lecture. That said, I don't necessarily think that delivering online education is cheaper than delivering face-to-face because many of these education providers have already invested in their buildings. Therefore, online is an additional thing. Uh, If you're designing for online first, then it can be very cost-effective. But I think when you're trying to do both, then it depends on how it's done to make sure you get a good return. But I guess what I would say is that prior to COVID, and then I think as things start returning to normal, open learning was used inside universities for blended learning, where part of the program is done online and part is done face-to-face. And that enables some cost savings as well, but it also actually provides, I think, a, a high level of quality if the online experience is designed really well. This also seems to be part of a democratisation of education where students have access to education. It's presumably a bit of a lower cost for them, but also they're much more flexible with their time so they can work at the same time as that they're studying or not have to go to a city, for example, or another country to get a very high quality degree. Is that part of what you're looking at doing? Yeah, the way that we see it is that the democratization of education is actually largely happening in the postgraduate space and the lifelong learning space, not necessarily in the undergraduate area. And the reason for that is because in many countries, access to undergraduate education, so bachelor's degrees, diplomas, vocational, even though it's face-to-face and is quite costly, There are significant support systems in place from government funding and subsidies. And over the years, the governments have ensured that there's campuses close enough to most people. So I would say that experience is one that is likely to continue face-to-face. And online and education technology and open learning, they're all helping to support that. So, you know, in order to deliver an effective education, whether it's face-to-face or online, requires a platform like open learning. So we are helping to support that, but I'd say the biggest change and the the most significant disruption is occurring in the lifelong learning and postgraduate space. And that's where people who have already graduated from university or maybe never got the chance to go to university or college now have the opportunity to upskill and reskill themselves extremely cost-effectively online and having access to a whole range of courses from all over the world not just their local institutions. So that's an area where we see far more, I guess, education moving online, a lot more being delivered online, and the cost of these programs coming down significantly. I mean, if you were to think that, you know, previously, if you wanted to learn, say, computer science or AI or even business management or lots of different programs, you'd have to go back to university, go back to college, take a course, enroll in a master's degree, And that would take years, cost tens of thousands of dollars. Now, many of these courses you can take as short courses that might cost hundreds or a couple thousand dollars or even less if you're trying to teach yourself. (laughs) So I'd say that there's a significant change that's occurred in the lifelong learning and postgraduate space. And we're starting to see that manifest itself in declining domestic enrollments in postgraduate degrees. Although online is growing, so online degrees are growing as its own subcategory, the overall number of people taking postgraduate degrees in Australia, domestic students, excluding international, has actually been in decline for a few years. And that's prior to COVID. And the reason for that is I think everyone has greater access to short courses, micro-credentials, and lifelong learning online. 
Adam, you, you referenced at the start, um, you're approaching 200 customers now. I, I know us from the latest Appendix 4C, the customer growth seems to be going faster than the annual recurring revenue growth. What's the kind of lag between signing up a customer to, you know, them getting fully set up on the platform and up and running? Can you give us maybe a rough average to say, okay, I don't know, let's say... James Cook University up in Queensland signs up today. Okay, how long before they're kind of really up and running and you're billing them, you know, for program delivery or the SaaS license model, whichever they might opt for? Yeah, it's a great question. So the number of customers that we report in our quarterlies is actually the number of SaaS customers that have paid us in that quarter. So we don't actually count them as a customer until we've started charging them. So in that sense, they're already up and running on the platform. The reason why we've seen ARR, annualized recurring revenue, grow a bit more slowly than customer numbers is that we're seeing a lot of smaller customers sign up. And then we've also made a shift towards more usage-based pricing, whereas previously some of our contracts were on a fixed amount. So when we switch them to usage-based, some of those contracts initially are a lower value but we expect that to increase over time as their usage increases. So there's, I guess, a couple of things that are happening there. One is that we're seeing more smaller clients starting to come on board now, that we have the self-service options available. Uh, so it's opening up a new market, which is more of the private providers, vocational colleges, and training providers. But we've also seen a little bit of a shift in annualized recurring revenue because we've moved some of the, more, the older contracts into a usage-based model. And that's had a short-term negative impact on our annualized recurring revenue. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm presuming R&D is a major cost in terms of, you know, continually improving the platform and responding to what, you know, your customers are asking developers and putting together roadmaps. How do you think of the cost for R&D as, do you think it is like a percentage of revenue or do you have a, a kind of a roadmap every year and it's going to vary depending on what you, you want to achieve during the year? Yeah, it's a great question. So I guess when you're running a large-scale you know, technology platform, and especially one like Open Learning, which is used by so many people around the world, you have to remain competitive. And at Open Learning, our focus has always been to be a few years ahead of the market, you know, a few years ahead of the competitors. And we've done that from a holistic platform perspective, but particularly from an educational perspective, and that what the platform enables from a learning design and learning experience perspective is actually quite far beyond what else is out there. So in order to do that, in order to also respond to any feature requests or integrations or bug fixes and all of that, that's really necessary. We've maintained a fairly stable sized uh, software engineering team and product team. And the way we've looked at that is we have that sort of you know fixed amount of resources dedicated to the platform as a whole. 
A portion of that is obviously for R&D and new feature development and those kinds of things. At the moment, we don't look at that as a percentage of revenue. We actually just keep it sort of fixed. And then we manage the roadmap to determine what we can actually fit into that amongst all of the competing requirements that are out there. So that means over time, as the revenue grows, the percentage that we are spending on the platform is not likely to increase as a percentage of revenue. It's actually likely to decrease as a percentage of revenue. You referenced previously in the conversation to enterprise-specific education, and I believe companies like Facebook, they have particular needs for people who want to work for them, and there are courses that are specifically designed for particular companies. Is that something that you do, and have you got any examples of that? Yeah. So in the enterprise learning space, there's a few ways that we approach it. One is we have some agreements, software as a service agreements, directly with companies. For example, we signed up Afterpay earlier this year, and Afterpay is delivering financial literacy education on open learning to their end customer base, their end users, in partnership with the Australian Retailers Association. So that's an example where we're enabling a company to use education to engage their customer base and to provide upskilling opportunities. Another way that we achieve this is in collaboration with universities. And universities are often providing their courses or short courses, executive education to companies. And that's actually a great use case for open learning because open learning enables much more engaging, richer style of learning to be delivered off campus. And that fits the needs for an enterprise. So we've actually worked quite closely with a number of universities to design and build out programs on open learning specifically for their corporate clients and some very large corporates at that. And then the third way that we engage with enterprises and companies is by helping to promote courses directly to them that are running on open learning. So for example, across a lot of our clients, there might be a collection of courses in certain topics. So in some cases, we get inquiries about you know what courses are available in sort of technology or in health. And then we can say, okay, on open learning, we've got this set of courses from all of our partners and we can you know, make that connection if it makes sense. So that's sort of the three ways that we actually enable our clients, the universities, education providers, to generate more revenue from enterprises. And open learning you know, sits in between as a delivery platform and sometimes the connector as well. Have you identified any uh, competitors in this space? Yeah, so there's always competitors in any market, particularly one the size of education. And there's probably two main categories of competitors. There's competitors or what looks like a competitor from a consumer's perspective. So when you go to open learning, you see courses available to take, and then you go to other websites, you see courses available as well. So there's a lot of websites around the, the world on the internet that are providing courses to the public. Now, open learning as a platform, it means that we're actually might be delivering some of those courses, even though they're listed on other websites. But the main competitors, I guess, from that, in that category, would be the large lifelong learning platforms like Coursera, FutureLearn, edX to some extent. So these are platforms that also would partner with universities to help them deliver some courses online. There's a few big differences though. One is geography. We're focused on Australia and Southeast Asia, whereas the rest are more US and European focused. The second is the platform itself. Open Learning is a far superior learning platform and designed more for that project-based collaboration style of learning. But also we're platform first, which means that we enable education providers to build and design whatever kinds of courses they want on the platform. 
Whereas on a Coursera and FutureLearn, you have to build the course the way they specify. You know, it has to be a certain length, has to cost a certain amount. You lose the ability to brand the course the way you want. So first and foremost, those sites are marketplaces and they're distribution channels. Whereas open learning is first and foremost a learning platform. So that means a lot of universities we work with in Australia actually do have courses on Coursera or FutureLearn, but only a handful. And then they use open learning for the vast majority of their short courses and, and micro-credentials and lifelong learning that they want to deliver because open learning is just a lot more flexible. Now, the second set of competitors would be in the learning platform space. And our main competitors there are actually the traditional learning management systems. So every university will have a learning management system that they've had for quite some time. And that's how they deliver all of the documents, you know, video lectures, quizzes. So it's usually quite a traditional platform. It's designed more for content delivery rather than for learning, I would say. And when a university is looking to move into short courses or micro-credentials, lifelong learning, they often look at using their existing platform and seeing whether they can. And you know, usually the learning experience isn't that good in those platforms, so they look for something else like open learning, which is purpose-built for the consumer market. Adam, you referenced earlier the transition program that you've launched with uh, UNSW. Is that an exclusive partnership or is that something that can, can be rolled out to, you know, RMIT, Australian Catholic University, now that, you know, hopefully we're getting back to, you know, international students, which are a huge component of the higher education sector and indeed Australia's kind of GDP at this point. Can you roll that out to them or is this something that, you know, UNSW wants to keep and set aside and say, hey, this is a key differentiator when they're marketing to attract overseas students to their uh, university programs? So the great thing about the UNSW Transition Program Online is that it's open to other universities. And UNSW Global is actively encouraging more universities to accept students who complete the program. So you might have seen we announced, I think a few months ago, that there's now five more universities that are accepting students who complete the transition program. There's four from the UK and actually one from New Zealand as well. And the way this works is that while it's a UNSW-branded program, UNSW knows that not every student is going to go to UNSW. And if a student wants to go to UNSW, they will come. <laughs> so the idea is if you can turn the, the UNSW transition program into a global pathway program where you have you know, dozens of universities in many countries accepting students, then international students will know, you know wherever they are in the world that they could take this program and eventually go to the university of their choice. Now, in that, if the program becomes very popular, UNSW obviously believes that a good portion will choose UNSW because, you know, the experience is great and, and all of that. But realistically, a rising tide lifts all boats. So if the program becomes very popular, while UNSW's share of students might be lower, the total number is probably going to be higher. So we're really actually lucky and honored that UNSW is willing to do this. They see the strategic advantage of, you know, being the university that is backing a global pathway program. And that means that they're not only open to having more universities accept the program, but they're actually actively working to get more universities to accept it. 
So is it a joint marketing kind of campaign? UNSW are, you know, pushing it with their kind of university links and you guys are kind of pushing it when you're speaking to the technology officers uh, at various universities, kind of a twin pronged approach. I know we're coming up to the Southern Hemisphere, start of the school year. You know, we've just come through the Northern Hemisphere, start of the school year in September. So should we expect to see more universities come online over the kind of next 12 months? Yeah, um, we've indicated that we're expecting more universities to accept the program. And I think either UNSW will make announcements from time to time when more universities are accepting it, and we'll probably do the same. So yeah, we're expecting more universities to accept students taking the program. I think the exciting thing is that we're now into our third intake of the program. And you know, this is all within one year, effectively, of um, announcing the program, setting it up, and now we're into our third cohort. And in total, over 100 students are now going through the program. So that's actually providing a lot of a lot of data, a lot of feedback, a lot of evidence, the efficacy of the program, and that will actually help get more universities to come on board as well. Typically, it takes a long time for new programs to get up and running, to get the traction. This has been a lot faster than most programs would come to market, but it's been very exciting. So yeah, we're definitely looking forward to getting more universities to accept it. Adam, I've got one final question. So I know historically, you know, you've got very good traction in the Australian market and indeed the Malaysian market. What's kind of the market that you're really chasing either up in Asia or potentially in New Zealand? Or is it, you know, consolidating these two bases so that you're kind of the real number one by a clear mile in Australia and New Zealand? You know, what's your focus right now? Yeah, so we're focused on solidifying our position in the Australian and Malaysian markets, but we are also starting to expand into Indonesia. So we see Indonesia as the next big market for us. And we've started doing the groundwork actually over the past couple of years. And now we're starting to build out the sales and marketing team in Indonesia as well. So we see Australia and Malaysia as our initial core markets starting to expand into Indonesia. We do have clients all around the world, and through our self-service model, we can service institutions in the US, UK, everywhere else. But education is a market that benefits a company when they're actually sticking around, when they're part of the local education ecosystem, when they understand the regulatory environment. So for us, actually making sure that we're really focused and committed to a smaller number of markets is core to our strategy. And that's enabling us to move into different verticals, you know, expand from, say, universities into vocational and training providers within the same markets and expand our addressable market that way. You know, launching new programs like the UNSW Transition Program online, like um, Computer Science 101, a new computer science program that we've put together with industry partners and a lot of technology companies. You know, we can market that quite heavily in our existing markets as well. So yeah, we're really focused on this region, but we also do pick up clients from US, UK and other markets now and then, and that's more through inbound. Okay, great. Adam, thank you very much for joining us and we'll be watching out for announcements over the next couple of months as uh, international students start moving around the place again. And uh, I guess universities can kind of get back to thinking about uh, running as they normally would rather than trying to realign everything and still deliver programs in a kind of a COVID-style environment. Thanks. It's been great to be here today. Really appreciate your time and look forward to keeping in touch. And thanks, Adam. It was great to meet you as well. Thanks very much. 
Companies interviewed for this podcast have contributed to the cost of production. This should not be construed as sponsorship or endorsement. The role of this podcast is to convey the company's story. All listeners must seek advice from an ASIC licensed finance professional before making any investment in these companies, as microcap stocks are speculative in nature. Listeners are required to do their own research and due diligence in conjunction with the relevant advice from your ASIC licensed finance professional. Participation by companies in the podcast does not suggest or imply any sort of recommendation about the companies being interviewed. Nothing in the podcast is to be considered general or personal financial advice in any way, shape or form. All company interviews are for informational and educational purposes only. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.